Hi everyone, this is Nazifa and you're listening to The Student Initiative, a podcast where I interview inspiring individuals who are determined to improve healthcare in the UK, all while still being students. Today on my podcast, I have two guests with me, Sarah and Tina, two medical students who have been involved with organising the Decolonising the Medical Curriculum Movement at UCL. Last year, they set up a Facebook group, using the platform to organise regular discussions and roundtable talks alongside students from other medical schools, discussing topics around racism, health inequalities and concepts around decolonisation in healthcare. They're here today to talk more about the work they're involved in, the purpose of the decolonising movement and put forward some solutions on ways to improve the medical curriculum today. Hi guys, thank you both so much for coming along to speak to me today. This topic is very dense and there is a lot for us to talk about. But before we break everything down, why don't you guys just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourselves and what motivated you guys to start organising this movement? All right, I'll uh, I'll jump in first. Um, So I'm Tina, I'm a fifth year medical student at UCL. Um, my background, I guess, was that I was always sort of interested in like the humanity side of medicine, like not purely the like medical degree. And I really wanted to keep up some sort of like arts and humanity side, um, like at medical school. And it led me to pick global health for my bachelor's. And then I took a year out from medicine to do medical anthropology. And I was really um, preoccupied with like social determinants of health inequalities, which now that I'm more in like the clinical scene are becoming like ever more visible. And um, yeah, like Sarah's like a like-minded student who is now, who was in my year and is now the year ahead. Um, so I'll pass over to her. Yeah, so similar, really similar to Tina actually, how I began. So before I applied for medicine, I was in midway through a major in psychology and literature so I've always had an interest in the social sciences and humanities. And as well, moving to the UK from Singapore made me really aware of subjects like culture, cultural difference, and, and how it can really change your worldview and shape your opinions. And that really led me to do my IBSC year in medical anthropology and sort of learning you know, different perspectives on narratives for health, illness, and identity, and that got me interested when I returned to clinical medicine in the whole decolonizing the curriculum movement and getting involved in in that area. So what actually triggered you guys to start up the Facebook group? What were some of the events that led you to think, okay, we have to do something? So I think, you know, we've, Tina and I have had conversations with that maybe a year ago about the gaps in the curriculum and how you know, within the mainstream medical curriculum, there's a failure in terms of teaching students how to think critically about topics like race, ethnicity, in relation to medicine, power imbalances in the clinician-patient encounter, dangers of medical paternalism, and so on. And we ha- we're having these conversations with the medical school as well about incorporating more anthropology and, and cultural theory into the curriculum. But there wasn't much interest in the beginning. So this was you know, about a year ago now, and uh, the medical school is quite slow to respond, and there wasn't the sense of urgency about around these issues. And so it really was only in this May and June, you know, following the killing of George Floyd and resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement globally, where there was this reigniting of the discussion around anti-racism, and many students began to ask questions about institutional racism and sort of 
there's this sense that it's not enough to not be racist, but there's this need to be actively anti-racist. And aligning you know, with the decolonizing curriculum agenda, at the time I was researching a paper on decolonizing the medical curriculum. And I really felt the sense that there was a gap in knowledge among medical students about what the term really means and what it symbolizes in the sense of the broader movement that's taking place around the world. And a lot of people had more time on their hands as well and were suddenly reading like Audre Lorde, James Baldwin, Tanahazi Coates and Akala. You know, there was so much going on and resources being shared. And so that's when I decided to start a reading list with the help of people like Tina, uh, Ife, Davina and other students from other medical schools besides UCL. And we really wanted to start a list of journal articles, papers, books, but also podcast films, TV programs uh, that provided an introduction to decolonizing the curriculum to medical students and make it a lot more accessible. Um, and to, I guess, sort of clarify some of the difficulties in using the terminology and some of the confusion and complexity that surrounded that. And, um, you know, we were trying to un answer the question, basically, what does decolonization mean in medicine? And why is this relevant to us as medical students? Yeah, I mean, I think clearly the murder of George Floyd, as well as actually COVID and some of the research that was coming out of that regarding health disparities, um, really was a trigger to many different things. Um, and I think it brought these kind of discussions around systemic racism and decolonization and things like that uh, more into the public arena. Um, and now I think there is definitely this greater sense of urgency for action um, in a way that perhaps was never there before, or at least certainly wasn't as visible as it is now. Having said all of that, um, what does decolonizing the curriculum actually mean? Yeah, so this is a discussion that we have quite a lot because obviously it's like quite a broad movement. There are lots of different people and groups involved and like a lot of different perspectives because a lot of the issues that we deal with are so wide and broad that there isn't like an easy or like correct answer Um to them. So I think it's good to like like break down the terms. So what is decolonization and the decolonizing movement? Um, the key part of it is undoing forces of colonialism and the hierarchies they have created that have resulted in a power imbalance. And that is true in whatever you're looking at, whether that's the arts, in literature, in sport, in research, even um, just all of these different areas in modern day society um, is like, a, like you can use the decolonizing angle to sort of deconstruct the social problems that arise in them. So historically, it has been used as a way of repatriating indigenous land. Um, so there's actually criticism of our use of the word decolonization that we are kind of co-opting this word um, when actually decolonization is not a metaphor. And that's like a key quote that we keep coming back to because we don't want to misappropriate the original use of this term but it has also been used in the decolonizing the university movement which is a global student-led um, movement that can trace its origins to the 2015 protests at the Cape Town University where they were removing the statue of Cecil Rhodes who was a key figure in the um, kind of British imperialist movement. 
Um, so medicine, this is actually very interesting for us to consider as we're all medical students, but medicine is actually quite a small part of health. And we've really got to think more broadly about the connection between healthcare, social care and community. And what does medicine actually include and exclude? What are the boundaries of medicine? Because traditionally it's quite seen as quite apolitical and quite conservative, but there is so much shifting within the NHS with students and doctors becoming more politically active and also focusing more on social aspects of medicine, like social prescribing has become more of a thing. Uh, and that's not really what medicine traditionally, or like at least biomedicine used to be. And the last thing is the curriculum. So this is really important for us at university. So what is explicitly in the curriculum, like what is formally taught and the implicit curriculum. So how is it taught? What is the kind of environment in which we are learning? Um, the social part of learning, which is also quite important um, for all of our students. And who gets to decide what is included and excluded from our medical education? Like, obviously, we have the GMC, we have the medical school, but also we have us students. Like, we are actually surprisingly powerful, especially since the university has become more business-like and students are more consumer-like. Like our feedback is actually very important for what the medical school and universities in general will offer on their curriculum. Um, but one of the, yeah, a key thing is like, as I said, standards in education. And we've already seen actually, if I if we compare our first year to the first years of today, there's already been slight shifts in curriculum. For example, um, the session on like microaggressions and like everyday isms like we didn't have that as first years and now that's a key part of it so we can see that things are mm. shifting that's shifted so much then from say 50 years ago where we had this very paternalistic model of medicine to the kind of more patient-centered care that we're aiming for today but going back to your original question of decolonizing the medical curriculum all together really emphasizes that medicine is not separate from contemporary social issues of racism, discrimination and pre prejudice. And we're arguing that these are historically rooted and our emphasis on decolonizing is that it's an active process. And arguably the work is never going to be complete because there just isn't a state where colonization didn't happen. Um, so recognizing this, like the historical rootedness of this is a really key part. Um, and it's actually a key part that is really often overlooked. And we really believe that medical school is the key time to make that intervention, which is why we're really focusing on the curriculum. Um, but the decolonizing the curriculum is really vibrant in the arts and humanities and everything like that. And actually medicine is really, we really need to catch up basically um, and improve our like historical consciousness and critical thinking about like the position of medicine and our role as medical students within the future of medicine. Mm, I mean, it it really is quite surprising how um, late medicine is in joining this this discussion around um, decolonization. It is quite surprising. I wanted you guys actually to clarify to people who may not be familiar with this topic, um, of which there will be many, because we aren't taught about the British colonies in schools, um, other than watching a few I guess, Channel 4 documentaries about the British in India. Um, but could you guys give me some examples of how colonial forces or the history of colonisation is still affecting our medical education today? Yes, yeah, so I think if I had to go back to the idea of 
the way things are and this taken for grantedness. I think that's a really an integral attribute and aspect of the colonial project. Uh, things like, of course, some racial groups are superior to others. Of course, Western science is superior to local and indigenous ways of thinking and ways of valuing knowledge. And so I, I think, you know, there's so many places I could go with this, but I think I'll, I'll just touch on, you know, two aspects and two statements of belief that we take for granted within medicine here, especially in the UK. And so the first is the belief in the superiority of Western knowledge and Eurocentric paradigms about medicine and what medicine should be. And I think one thing that colonialism has really contributed or <laughs> colonialism has really um, you know, inevitably resulted in is this idea that biomedicine or what we know as Western medicine is superior to other medical systems, is superior to other ways of thinking or alternative ways of thinking about ideas around health, illness and healing. And this includes patient narratives and perspectives. And as a result, this has led to a lot of what we know as paternalistic medicine and the idea that, you know, doctors know best, they know what's best for the patient because they have the expertise. And when we think about things like who has knowledge in a clinical encounter, the doctor has the knowledge, the patient is the recipient of the knowledge. And relating this back to colonialism, colonial exploits were justified because of a belief in Western superiority. And this had justified things such as, you know, the displacement and destruction of indigenous cultures, uh, of healing systems. And we can see this reflected in medicine today, you know, attitudes of medical professionals today. A lot of doctors are dismissive of complementary and alternative medicines. And many of these have, you know, deep-seated origins in Asia, Africa, South America, and they represent sort of these integrative approaches to healings that many doctors can be quite skeptical of and can often relegate to categories of pseudoscience, a superstition, or placebo effect. When in actual fact, these are they have a real value and real meaning in to a lot of patients and within a lot of cultures. I really like how you start exploring this issue around narrative um, and the assumption that we see so often in healthcare. Um, that Western medicine is superior to all other forms of medical practices around the world. Um, and I think it it contributes a lot to this kind of superiority complex that we often see the West take. Um, and that in itself contributes to a lot of things like racial stereotyping that we see in medicine today. And that in itself has such a massive influence in the way that we practice and in the way that we're taught. Yeah, so I mean, when so something that comes up a lot in decolonizing the medical curriculum is this belief in race as a biological entity and the idea that race exists as something that is a, a, a something that's factual and something that's biological and scientific. Um, and I think this uh, definitely has roots in colonization and colonial history in terms of, you know, ordering the world segregating races into different strata strata into different strata and 
so I think, you know, there's this, uh, there have been many debates about the value of race-based EGFR calculations for renal function, for example, um, as well as race-based recommendations for hypertension management, which we have to learn as medical students, and that Afro-Caribbean patients are given calcium channel blockers. Why? We don't really know. Uh, and it's just a lot of things that we don't question because they're guidelines, you know, and we trust the authorities where they come from uh, and the, the authorities that decide these things. Isn't it so funny that despite the fact that, you know, we would love to see medicine and science as being these disciplines based on concrete evidence and facts, but we as a profession are so unwilling to question actually where some of these guidelines and these so-called facts, where they actually come from. For example, Sarah, you brought up the hypertension guidelines and the fact that we are taught to give medication based on um, genet some genetic differences but we never really question where these guidelines come from what are these genetic differences that you are talking about are there really genetic differences or is this just a narrative that you know has been portrayed for a long time so we're just going to go along with it now um and i think it's really sad because medicine is just as easy influenced by you know social and political factors like any other discipline and it's really not a field that is as ob objective as we think it is. Yeah, de definitely. And I think that's a key shift within the social sciences that you have really recognised the position of the researcher within the research. So whether it's funding, whether it's the direction of the research or everything like that, it's actually not as objective as you think. And also that, so in, in any sorts of study that you do, people often control for race. But how do you even collect that data? Like, are there even agreed categories of race? Like, is it how you, the researcher, are going to classify those people, how those people are, or your researchees are going to, like, self-identify? It's, it's very, very difficult to do. And it comes back to this idea that we can differentiate groups by race and, like, whether that's some sort of by as a proxy for some sort of cultural difference as uh, like people are obsessed with there being like genetic differences between the races. Um, and it, you, it leads to this paradox because there's a recognition that there might be inequalities between groups. We're not sure where those come about, what those are, what those are caused though, but it's important to identify in order to direct like equitable opportunities and healthcare. But the problem is deciding who is included and excluded from those groups includes making categories of differences. And then these in the wrong way, like if, you're there, if they're used in the wrong way, can strengthen inequalities because they rarefy or like strengthen these ideas of difference that were the biological uh, component to it. Because quite often, if people don't want to mention the word race or ethnicity, they'll be like, oh, you have a genetic predisposition towards that but often that's used to kind of cover up the uncomfortable way of either talking about race or it's a way of not talking about race um mm -hmm. but it's it's a big problem in medicine so i'm working on an audit at the moment um and it's about uh, diabetes and pregnancy and it's quite important to record things like um race or ethnicity of the patients even though i um, I find it quite difficult to do, but there was a recent report that showed huge differences in out health outcomes for, like between different ethnic groups. But then when you're looking at the data that you're collecting, half of it is by kind of 
um, racial group that the patient self-identified. The other half was just recording nationality. So what are we supposed to do with that? Like, you can't assume that someone who is French is white European because they could be, like, of any um, background. Um, so then what do you do with this incomplete data? Because it's it's poor quality because it's not even recording the thing, but then we're also supposed to use it to like direct um, resource, like allocation of resources. Um, so that's like a key place where critical thought needs to be involved at every stage and not just things be followed blindly. Are you, or you, or like different healthcare professionals being quite passive about it. Mm, definitely. I think another huge problem is that actually we as medical students are taught to believe in certain racial stereotypes in order to make um, certain diagnoses. Um, for example, every question bank will have a question regarding a Bangladeshi man who has come in with maybe a temperature and a cough and he has to have TB. Even if he's never been to Bangladesh, he's got TB. Um, and that's just one example of some of the racial stereotypes that we are made to believe in. Um, so I guess moving on, how can we change our medical curriculum or really shape it so that it is more inclusive of other narratives and not so reliant on racial stereotypes? Yeah, it, it's it's a tricky one. Like, our, our particular focus is on medical education because we see that as such a, a like a key time in your medical career. And it is really tricky because so much of the information that we get is it's black boxed. And that's like it's presented as a fact, completely disconnected from the knowledge system that produced it. And it would be unfair to expect us to question every single little thing that we're taught. That's why we're trying to get like faculty involved and actually have like um, bigger ideas for this sort of movement because it has to be like a, across the board um, but there are two sort of shifts in the way that we think um, that we really want to push like the first is the idea that race ethnicity as it, our identity like is a construct and that's not to say that it's not real um, there are lots of different ways of talking about like identity like in terms of intersectionality or the biopsychosocial model like things like that um, and the second is actually that structures and institutions that are historically rooted um, can cause new or propagate existing social problems. And there are like lots of theories like the social determinants of health or structural violence or institutional racism. And these are like key things, along with accepting that colonialism happened and had a lot of like negative consequences that a lot of people either don't know about don't fully accept or indeed like completely reject them. So th these are like some things to sort of start with. Um, but we've really identified like three main areas um, that the decolonizing um, the curriculum like needs to like angle out. The first one is like medical research. The next one is like medical education. And the last one is clinical practice. So kind of like furthering medical knowledge like being taught medical knowledge and then actually practicing it like those are three like key steps that um these sorts of like epistemic shifts or shifts in the way that we think have to happen so these are really interesting suggestions but the only thing i worry about when talking about narratives and the idea of shifting cultures um is this idea of active engagement and whether students ourselves um, can essentially be bothered to actively engage with some of these ideas and talks, particularly if you're not interested in social humanities, um, because it can appear to be a very abstract concept. Um, so how can we go about actually engaging students and making sure that we understand the importance of having some of these discussions and talks? Yeah, that's a really uh, good point, because 
like we've realized that we are quite a self-selecting group. So people who are already interested in this, they find us. And it's quite difficult, like especially in a time where we're working online to actually engage with people who are completely oblivious to this um, and actually, you know, are just doing the, the bare minimum med school anyway. Um, so something that we are applying for at the moment is like the UCL change makers, um, uh, like, um, wait, sorry. One thing we're applying for at the moment is the UCL Changemakers grant, and that will allow us um, space to do some like research where we want to have some focus group discussions. Um, and we particularly want to engage with students who are not already aware of these sorts of things or actually are a bit more hesitant to accept these because of their political beliefs or for whatever reasons. We actually really want to engage with them um, make sure that we are being challenged um, that we're not just kind of preaching to the choir okay. um, and also encourage like diversity of thought because we are coming from our individual backgrounds but like possibly people from other backgrounds will have um, lots of different things to say um, and we really want um, the students to be the co-creators of this movement that they are going to be deciding like where the um, movement is taking us. Yeah I think I think one angle that's been really helpful in sort of us it, it sort of getting medical students to care and a lot of people's question to me especially or to us as a, as a group is why does this matter um why are we spending so much time delving into what can seem sometimes to be quite abstract theory quite theoretical explorations uh, quite intellectual and academic and i i found a really helpful angle is to speak a bit speak of the effects of decolonizing in terms of outcomes so patient outcomes and medicine is all about outcomes medical students want outcomes you know and that is a product as well of you know things like evidence-based medicine the biomedical view and that's you know that's not something that necessarily bad it's not something we should criticize it's, it's very valuable so I, I think one thing we draw attention to is you know what impact does this have on patients how does this result in health inequalities how are some of the questions around for example the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 on ethnic minorities in our British population and some very uh, startling statistics that doesn't necessarily surprise anyone, uh, but you know, we sort of <laughs> somehow managed to feign this shock over and over again when we are faced with these statistics, and yeah, <laughs> it's wild. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's just so much in terms of, um, as Tina mentioned, you know, maternal maternal mortality, the disparities in that field of obstetrics and gynecology. And I think, you know, framing it in that way, are we disadvantaging these ethnic minority patients, marginalized patient populations by not being aware and conscious of our own biases, of biases that are embedded within the systems we operate within and sort of thinking about broader structural racism and yeah, just basically, basically outcomes. I think that's really relevant to the debate. And that's something that's tangible at the end of the day. It's something that's quantifiable and something 
it's relevant to us. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm definitely hoping that with everything that has come about with COVID, um, students will really understand the um, importance of having some some of these discussions because it can seem as being quite, say, fluffy uh, to some people. Um, but actually, I think with everything that's happened, you know, it, it, it has proven that these discussions are actually critical to patient care. So I think you're right in, in, in trying to shift the emphasis to outcomes, because that might be the best way of engaging students. Um, moving on then to your campaign, even from this discussion that we've just had today, um, you can see it's actually quite a difficult topic to navigate to navigate at certain points um, because there is so much to it. Um, and like I said previ- previously, it can seem like a very abstract concept, particularly if you've never had any sort of prior knowledge about it. So how do you guys go about ensuring that the message that you are portraying on your Facebook group and other uh, media platforms is as accessible to as many people as possible? Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Naz. Um, and obviously, communication is really key here um, because we're coming from these like anthropological backgrounds. So a lot of the terminology that we use might be quite dense. Um, and a lot of the articles that we like to share are maybe not that readable, especially for someone who doesn't have a background in social science training. So a lot of it is that we, as with like kind of with two feet, like one in medicine, one in anthropology, like we're trying to sort of translate between and the social sciences and uh, like the medical students to try and make it as accessible as possible to like sci- like these kind of ideals to science students and i think we've done that through our like reading list um which has like not just academic articles but also like podcasts and movies like different forms of getting the message across um but where we've probably lacked is in terms of accessibility for um maybe with people like for like with disability so like as in we haven't got like an audio version of our podcast or or, sorry of our reading list um or uh we haven't done work like with people whose English isn't their first language or or things like that um but that's probably down to it's not because we don't want to it's just about how much time we can dedicate away from our like our medical degree but like that is obviously a very important part for accessibility and since you guys started off how has the group grown and what's people's reaction been like particularly from medical schools how have medical schools reacted to what you guys are doing yeah it's it's really interesting because so the kind of decolonizing movement has like long long existed in social sciences and humanities it's just lagging behind in medicine and about two years ago, um, uh, Ife, who's also in decolonizing medical curriculum um, with us, and I tried to set up like a medical humanity society, which was a, like less of a kind of movement and more of just a group for people to discuss. And it just sort of flopped, like it, there wasn't so much interest. And we really have to recognize that it was George Floyd's murder that sparked um, this like this new interest and momentum in this in this field, in this area. Um, and overall, there have been really positive reactions, but like obviously, we're, it's quite a self-selecting group. People are quite, quite interested in this. They're he- interested to hear this new angle. Um, Sarah and I, we ran this session uh, for the freshers, um, which was supposed to be on cultural competency, and we reworked it um, for a kind of uh, like looking at cultural safety rather than cu- cultural uh, competency, and that seemed to go down really well. Our feedback for that was. Um, like really, really nice uh, to hear. And it might have been Fresher's first time that they were exposed to this this way of thought. Um, from the medical school, it's quite 
difficult because it's quite a small team um like of the the people who are actually like running the curriculum um Sarah has been in contact probably a a bit more than I have yeah I think so I think in terms of um the usage of the word decolonizing so I think UCL did pioneer the usage of decolonizing in relation to the medical curriculum but for a long time, and you know, it was seen as this word that was a bit too radical, too political, um, too much uh, for for majority of of medicine. And I think there's been a growing, you know, in the last few months, uh, just with yeah, recent world events, you know, everything that's taken place in in this past year, there's been such a shift in the way people look at the word decolonization and so it's being reframed and there's there's been a sort of a cultural shift towards more mainstream acceptance of it for example in 2016 there was the roads must fall protest in oxford and there was a huge media backlash against the word decolonization and all they were pushing for in terms of removing statues of british imperialists and whereas now you can you know there's been so much more uh, understanding of of the motivations behind those movements and i think in terms of working with the medical school uh, there's there's also been a lot i think we've received quite a bit of support a lot more um yeah so i think in terms of uh following i think in june and in may and june there was this sort of window that was opening up for us with the medical curriculum and we actually received some support from faculty members who are encouraging us to sort of seize this moment in history and in a moment a brief moment where everyone's really open to dialogue and to discussing issues of race and racism and that's you know we we really in a sense had that opportunity um to come in when we did and i think that really contributed to the interest that we've had from students across different medical schools and within ucl and a sort of recognition um or under baseline understanding that this is a really important issue without us having to explain or justify why we're doing this i think there's been a lot more sort of acknowledgement that this is really important and this is really important issue I love that phrase that you use. I wrote it down too radical, too political, too much. Um, And I think you're right. Um, You guys really did seize that moment um, because now there is a greater acceptance, uh, particularly within the medical field, to engage in topics that may have previously seen as being too radical or too political and too much. Yeah. And it's actually quite interesting because like other groups, other like decolonizing groups, they would accuse us of not being radical enough, not being political enough just being enough altogether <laughs> so. yeah and I think in medicine sorry I just wanted to say you know like in medicine we are limited in a sense um, by professional guidelines professional bodies there's these expectations quite fixed and standardized expectations of what you need to learn and what you need to become in medical school and in that in a sense I think that's why medicine has been quite conservative as a whole, as a, an institution and profession, because there are all these sort of structures and traditional structures in place are very difficult to change. Yeah, for sure. And let's hope that changes in the future. Um, the last question I had for you guys is for advice. Um, advice for students, not just medics, but others who may want to set up their own um, decolonizing movement at the university. What advice do you have for people who want to set up similar things to what you guys are doing? 
Okay, so just like general advice um, would be like, like be open minded and be like um, have some humility and reflexivity when you're approaching these topics, because it might be quite confronting. You might have to confront some things about yourself, your um, your family, your family history and engage with like when you're engaging with other people that can feel quite threatening. Like we try to promote like as safe a space as possible within our like uh, Facebook groups or our reading discussion groups and things like that. Um, but you have to be curious and open-minded in order like to sort of have that capacity to change. And it's also like, look for examples that will inspire you that you see like in your own setting, whether that's in like medical education or in the clinical setting. Um, is there anything that you're, you question, like why is that organized the way that it is? And actually like a decolonizing approach can be a really instructive way for you to deconstruct a scenario that you're not really quite understanding um in terms of like if you wanted to like join a group we have a um facebook group and we have a twitter page that you're very very welcome to join um but in your own university if you can find a group of like-minded students have a look at what groups are there already and if you want to join them um as like a working group within them or if you need, want to set up your uh, your own uh, sort of group you we can do we, we've got a lot more time now that um a lot of things are being done from home and there's like a lot of like uh opportunities for you to set up things online um and also do your research like there is so much content out there that um people have written brilliant think pieces there are other medical schools like across the world who are doing similar things um that you can see this is appropriate for you and your like um, at university environment and Sarah do you have any last words of wisdom yeah yeah no definitely um agree with, with what Tina said in terms of you know like joining in a movement and I think the advantage of being part of the movement is that there are heaps of resources out there this way there are people who'd be happy to support you if you if you reach out and even if you feel like you're alone maybe within your medical school within your immediate environment I think there's always this sort of broader network especially now with online networks to really um, have that connection and, and communication with like-minded people and I just wanted to make a point about, you know, feeling like a minority in medicine, because it's really easy to feel marginalized and a sideline um, in medicine as a medical student, especially when the culture in medical school and in clinical environments is really homogenous, sometimes oppressive, and there's this pressure to strive towards an ideal of what the medical student should be and should and how they should behave. And I've realized that you know you can you can respond to this in two ways. You can either conform to this expectation, or you could spend your medical school years feeling completely inadequate, or sometimes both at the same time. And I think one lesson that I've learned meeting with other students and in my own personal experience is that if you feel like you're a minority in medical school, it's likely that maybe you're a leader and you just don't know it yet you're ahead of the crowd <laughs> and you have i think that's really important because one of the things that leaders often struggle with and leaders in terms of think um, one one thing that a lot of leaders struggle with is issues of esteem self-esteem self-confidence because you always feel like you're on your own 
And that's often because you're leading the pack or because you're having ideas that are unconventional, ideas that are too radical for now and for this moment in time. And so I, I think the advice would be really not to be afraid to step up. And even as myself, like I don't often think I'm the most articulate person in the room or the most charismatic. But I think one thing I've really learned is that there's different types of leaders, there's different types of leadership styles, and we shouldn't allow ourselves to be restricted to um, an ideal image that's been projected onto us. Thank you to everyone listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Sarah and Tina. You can find all of their details, including the link to the Decolonizing the Medical Curriculum Facebook group in the description box below. I'd also like to say thank you to the Healthcare Leadership Academy and Medics Academy for sponsoring and supporting this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a like, leave a comment and give us a follow. Thank you all for listening and see you at the next episode.